morning, if you will, take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Luke, chapter 17, our text for this morning will be verses 20 through 37. Luke, chapter 17, 20 through 37. Uh, if you're new to Redeeming Grace, we have been working our way through the Gospel of Luke for a good little while now, and we find ourselves here in chapter 17. We've been uh, taking a break or two here and there with some various different series, but we are uh, working our way this summer through uh, this gospel still yet, and we're encouraged in what the Lord has to teach us from this gospel. Luke chapter 17. I want to begin reading in verse 20. These are the words Luke wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, regarding the life and ministry of Jesus. Beginning in verse 20, we read, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the son of man and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there and look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot sent out from, was sent out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed and one will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. The mill, one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? He said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have given it to us to reveal yourself, your ways, your purposes. Lord, would you open our eyes now to receive from it what you have for us this day regarding your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have your expectations ever been misguided? Maybe it was a meal you ordered at your favorite restaurant that didn't turn out so well. Maybe you moved into your dream home only to find out it's not so dreamy after all. Or maybe it was a vacation you planned only to find out the place you were staying doesn't quite resemble the pictures you saw online. We know there are many ways that our expectations and reality don't often match. Misguided expectations can lead to some of the most serious disappointments in life. 
Sometimes it's not a big deal. I mean, if you have a bad meal, there's another one coming a few hours later, right? You move on pretty quickly. But there are others that if our expectations are misguided and misinformed, has some very lasting impacts in our lives. And nowhere is that truer than with Jesus and the kingdom of God. If your expectations about Jesus and his kingdom are wrong or misguided, not only will it impact how you live and hope in the present, but it will have devastating impacts for the future. The Pharisees in this account approached Jesus with a question. Now this was not uncommon. We know with the Pharisees, they often like to present Jesus with questions, oftentimes trying to trick him or trying to catch him in some kind of way. But here they come to him and they ask him a simple question. Being asked by the Pharisees, we're told when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them. But even the nature of their question about when the kingdom of God would come shows their expectations about what the kingdom is or was from their vantage point, how it was misguided. They did not have a biblically grounded view of the kingdom. Now, their expectation of the kingdom certainly involved some Bible behind it, Old Testament passages that they would surely would have referred to, but their expectations were misguided because their thinking about the nature of the kingdom involved a politically motivated military overthrow type scenario. When Messiah would come and destroy Rome and set up the kingdom there in Israel. But as Jesus goes on and as he said throughout the gospel, the kingdom of God is entirely different. It would not come by sword or through some political revolution. It would come in stages and bring about a reality that would impact not just the disciples, not just Israel, but the entire world as a whole. The kingdom of God, as it's presented to us in scriptures, involves both a present and future reality, a present and future reign of Christ over those who belong to him. It would be inaugurated at his first coming, but not realized in its fullest sense until he comes again a second time. And where we find ourselves today is living in between that first coming and that second coming, between the inauguration of the kingdom and awaiting its final state, its full completion. It's also where the disciples live, except their proximity to Jesus' first coming certainly was a lot closer than ours. So here in Luke chapter 17, Jesus gives some important instructions regarding the nature of his kingdom, regarding what proper expectations should be in, in reference to that kingdom and how we should live anticipating it, what we can expect regarding its arrival and regarding its impact. Jesus identifies in this passage two main things for us to consider and understand about the kingdom of God so that we have not only a proper expectation as to what it is, but also so how we would live appropriately 
in view of its present reality and future coming. Two main things. We're going to see two main things this morning, and then I'm going to follow up at the end with four pieces of application that speak to us directly today. First of all, the first thing that Jesus identifies regarding the kingdom of God is that we need to be sure of the kingdom's present reality. We need to be sure of the kingdom's present reality. In verses 20 and 21, Jesus is approached by the Pharisees and they simply ask him, when is the kingdom coming? Again, their question, somewhat misguided, it's kind of the wrong question to ask because of their understanding of what the kingdom of God was. Again, they believed that this kingdom was coming, that the Messiah would come and this spectacular event would happen accompanied by perhaps many cosmic signs that they would have drawn from the Old Testament imagery and result in this political revolution and defeat of Rome where Messiah would set up his kingdom there in Israel and all would be well again. And so Jesus makes sure in light of their question to set the record straight. In fact, Jesus tells them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Some translations may say within you, but it's really better put in the midst of you. Jesus tells them, the kingdom of God is not some grand event to observe but a reality that already exists right before them. Certainly they had in view this, 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 this grand event on some cosmic scale that would result in Israel's liberation. And while Jesus is not saying that the arrival of God's kingdom will be devoid of signs or evidence, he's emphasizing the kingdom of God is much more than some spectacular events. Indeed, the kingdom of God is at hand, we know, and he came preaching in Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15. He says, repent for the kingdom of God is what? At hand. How can that be though? How can the kingdom be at hand? Or how in this text can the kingdom of God be in the midst of you, as he refers, as he speaks to the Pharisees? How can God's kingdom already be present? Short answer, because the king is present, because Jesus is present. In fact, if they're looking for a sign, some, something to observe regarding the coming of the kingdom, it's staring right at them. Jesus is the one who came to bring about this saving work of God and to inaugurate the kingdom's arri arrival. The kingdom of God had arrived in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the reason the Pharisees don't get it though is because the kingdom of God is unlike all of the other kingdoms of the world. Jesus reminds us here, just in this simple answer, in reference to the kingdom of God being in the midst of you, that the kingdom of God is not some revolution military kind of thing. It's established on different principles with a different agenda. And his arrival in the world is the, is, is, the, is the sign, if you will, if they're seeking a sign, what, when's it coming, what, what, what can we observe? Jesus is saying, well, I'm here. The king has 
arrived. Think about this this way. You think about the changing seasons, right? We just entered summer, so it's officially summer. But how many of us were saying it was summer before it was summer, right? Most of you who finished school were saying, I'm on summer break. And June, was it 21st, summer? Somebody say yes. All right. June 21st is the first day of summer. But yet long before that, you were already saying it's summer. Summer had you know, the, the impact, the, the benefits of summer was, was already starting to be experienced and known and felt. And you, you felt the warmth, you know, hot day in May, it's summer, right? Similar in the sense of the kingdom of God, the, the kingdom is, is arriving, though not in its fullest sense yet. There are benefits of the kingdom, blessings of the kingdom, the presence of the kingdom because of the presence of the king, even though the fullness of the kingdom of God, what we will experience in the future is not yet present. Friends, this is a good word, I think, even for us today because I think we can often find ourselves thinking of God's kingdom being this far off reality, that it's something out there somewhere. We're waiting on it. And certainly we're waiting on the the kingdom of God to be in its fullest and final sense when we will enjoy the arrival of the king and his presence in, in perfect harmony with him forever and ever. And that's going to be a glorious time. And that is still yet to come. But let's not lose sight that the kingdom of God is in our midst. It is a present reality that we experience and participate in even today. No, it's not like the kingdoms of the world. You you can't compare the kingdom of God to the United States or to the United Kingdom or to other nations and kingdoms and rules of the world. It's a different reality. It's a different experience. It's something built on different principles with a different agenda. Jesus is a king who comes to lay down his life for the citizens of the kingdom, to give himself, to die for a people so that they could be released from the shackles of sin and misery and shame and guilt. The kingdom of God was in their midst because Jesus was in their midst. See, the kingdom of God was right in view of the Pharisees and they didn't see it. They only had room for a kingdom that aligned with their social, political, and cultural agenda. But we're reminded the kingdom of God, Jesus says elsewhere, my kingdom is not of this world. If it had been, my my disciples, my people would have come fighting but it's not, it's different. Friend, I, I just wonder if you're here with us or maybe you're watching on our, on our live stream this morning and maybe you're not a Christian and maybe you're just trying to, to, under, trying to seek to understand more about who Jesus is. I, I wonder if some of you have dismissed Jesus because sadly, he's been presented to you as a leader of some kind of cultural or political making. He's kind of a means to a political or social end. But friends, when you read the Bible, he is not a means to some political or social end. His kingdom is not like the kingdoms of this world. He is a king who comes to invite you to follow him. He comes to release you from the reality of sin and guilt and judgments. He's a king who invites you to follow him. Some have confused the nature of Jesus' kingdom. 
There's all kinds of, of teaching today that would lead you to, to think that the kingdom of God is, is something else when it's not. Certainly there are implications of kingdom living, but yet the kingdom of God is not of this world. There's been false teachings like liberation theology or the social gospel or far left or far right political activism that have sought to hijack the true nature of the kingdom of God. And while the kingdom ethic certainly informs how we live and do good and do justice and do righteousness in this world, we should pursue it understanding that the reality of the kingdom, unlike the kingdoms of this world, shapes how we live in light of the release from the burden of sin and shame. The kingdom of God is a present reality because Jesus is present. But number two, we should anticipate the kingdom's future fulfillment. Anticipate the kingdom's future fulfillment. Notice in verse 24 that Jesus turns back to address the disciples and instructs them further regarding the days of the Son of Man. So verses 20 and 21, he's addressing the Pharisees, and now he says to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. So now Jesus is referencing this, this phrase, one of the days of the Son of Man. These days point to the time when Jesus would return a second time. Now he's still on his first visit. He's not yet completed his ministry on the first go round, but he's now referring to, to this second arrival, this, this days when the Son of Man would come and consummate the kingdom to bring it to its full and final place. So to the Pharisees, Jesus highlights the present reality of the kingdom of God, but to the disciples, he points them to a future time when the kingdom of God would reach its final state. He tells them that a day would come when they would desire to see one of these days of the Son of Man. Again, a time after which the Son of Man would return and vindicate his people. A day when sin and evil would be no more. They would long for this day, the disciples would, because we know that there would come a day when they would suffer much because of their connection to Jesus. Remember Jesus told his followers that in this world you will have tribulation. In this world you will suffer persecution. In this world you will be persecuted because they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. So they, they would experience these, this day, this, this time in their lifetime when they would desire they would long for one of the days of the Son of Man that when, when, when the Messiah would come again and establish the fullness of, of his kingdom once and for all. They would long for this day because they would experience much hardship and much suffering, much persecution for the cause of Christ in the world. He told them on several occasions that they would experience this hardship and trouble because they merely followed him. Not to mention the lingering effects of sin and suffering. Friends, we too live in a day between these two comings. The, the, the last days, I know people get caught up with this, I'll talk more about it in a minute. They get all caught up with the last days. Listen, the last days are the days between Jesus' ascension after his first coming and his second coming. The disciples lived in the last days and we live in the last days. It's that entire time frame. And so living between these two comings, we encounter, just like the disciples did, much hardship and trouble whether it's our own sin or suffering, persecution or something else in a fallen world, we know what it's like to desire Jesus to return. 
How, how many times have you been in a, in a, in a very difficult situation and the, the cry of your heart has come quickly, Lord Jesus. Lord, come again, help, just deliver us from this, this wicked world. This is what Jesus is getting at here. There's going to be a time when they would desire this kind of day when the Son of Man would return. But Jesus tells them that though they will long to see it, they're not going to. <laughs> Wouldn't that be encouraging, right? Um, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. it he's not going to come when you, when you want him to and expect him to. Why? Because God has set an appointed time when that would happen. Now, he goes further to explain and give further instructions about the nature and the timing of this return. And friends, no matter what end times viewpoint you may hold to or millennial viewpoint you, must hold, you think you must hold to or think others must hold to, these are the things you need to hold to, what I'm about to tell you, all right? These are the things that the Bible speaks clearly to. All right, here we go. Several things that we will need to understand regarding the return of Christ. Number one, it will be unmistakable. Good verses 23 through 25. They will say to you, look there or look here. Don't go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the son of man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Jesus tells the disciples that no matter how bad things get, no matter how much they may suffer, they should not despair to the point of believing false narratives or false claims of the end. People will come up with all kinds of foolish and false claims and speculation regarding the coming of the Son of Man. And he says, don't buy into the hype. Don't buy into that kind of stuff because when the Son of Man returns, it will be clear. As lightning flashes in the, in the skies, it light up the sky for all to see, so will the Son of Man be when he comes. His coming will be public, it will be visible, it will be unmistakable. When he comes again, no one will be saying, what's going on? But he goes on to clarify. He goes on to clarify that, that things needed, certain things still needed to take place. Namely, that he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Here's now a fifth reference in the Gospel of Luke to his pending suffering and death. He's alluding to, to the cross here. He, he's alluding to the fact that he's going to die, he's going to suffer, be rejected, and die on a cross. He would return again. The Son of Man would come again, yes. But first, a work had to be accomplished. He's still on his first mission. He's, he's still coming, he's still part of the first coming here. He had work to do in fulfillment of Old Testament promises as the suffering servant, Isaiah 53. He had to die and on the third day be raised so that sin could be atoned for not just for the disciples, but for all who would put their hope and trust in him from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language. 
without this work of suffering, there would be no hope of entering this kingdom. This king was present because he came to give his life as a ransom, as a sacrifice, as a substitute in his death, in his life of righteousness, but in his death on a cross so that sinners could be reconciled to God and be welcomed into the kingdom of God. You do not become a citizen of the kingdom unless you're born again, unless you are made new through the accomplished work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. Without this work of suffering, there would be no hope of this kingdom. That, there would be no reason to hope for the second coming. Hebrews 9 verse 28, or excuse me, verse 27 and 28, the writer of Hebrews says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. So right there, you see the writer of Hebrews talks about both the first and the second coming of Christ. The first coming, he came to bear the sins of many. That's what Jesus is referring to here in verse 25. First, he must suffer many things. He must bear the sins of many. The cross had to happen for your sins to be forgiven. Without the shedding of blood, Hebrews tells us, there is no forgiveness of sins. And this work that Jesus accomplished is a work now that's to be proclaimed to the ends of the earth so that when he does come again, those who are eagerly waiting for him, as Hebrews says, would not just be a small group of disciples in Israel, but people literally from the ends of the earth. Jews and Gentiles, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every language will be waiting for him when he comes again. Therefore, this gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. And when he comes the second time, for all who have put their hope and trust in him, those from every tribe, it will be unmistakable. It will be clear what it is. Number two, it will be unexpected. It will be unexpected, verses 26 through 30. Notice Jesus says, he's continuing to talk about the coming of the Son of Man. He says, just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Remember the story of Noah? Noah's called to build the ark. He took him, what, 120 years or so to build this ark. Uh, they built one in Kentucky a lot faster, but this was the real ark. Um, long time. People thought he was crazy. People were just going about their normal daily routine, and there's that crazy guy over there, yes. continue to carry about their normal lives without any regard to God and then the judgment. Verses 28 through 30, he gives another example. So there's Noah's example, like the days of Noah, normal life, then the, then the rains and the water came, judgment came, except for Noah and his family who were spared in the ark. Gospel imagery there. Second example in verse 28, likewise, 
Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. Sodom was a very wicked city. They were carrying out all kinds of wickedness there. And Lot and his family were given the opportunity to leave and they did and judgment came just as it was in the day of Lot. So will it be when the son of man comes again. This is exactly how it's going to be when Jesus comes. There will be normal living, normal sin in the world. It'll be a normal day. There will not be months of news reports leading up to it. There will not be an announcement of any kind. People will be living life in the regular, fallen ways, many most completely oblivious to God in the coming judgment, and then without warning, Jesus will come again. It will be unexpected. The warning here certainly applies to unbelievers. It should be a, a warning to you if you're not a, not a Christian, if you're not following Jesus, this should be of warning to you that this day we don't know when it will be. It should, it should cause you a sense of urgency within your heart to understand how, to, how, how urgent the need is for you to be reconciled with God. It also applies to those who follow Jesus, not to see this as some trivial matter. It's a reminder to us who follow Jesus that we should not be so busy with life that we are unprepared for the day when he does appear. I mean, do you ever, do you ever think, I'm assuming you don't because I don't think this on the daily, but you ever just think, wake up in the morning, could this be the day Jesus comes again? Like, are you in the middle of something? Whoa, Jesus could come right now. I mean, do you think that often? <laughs> we typically don't, but that this is what we're, we're being told it's going to be unexpected. You're not, you're not going to have time to prepare. It will just come like the days of Noah, like the days of Lot. People will be living their normal daily lives, scrolling through Netflix, going to kids' games, going to work, normal stuff. It will be unexpected. Number three, it will be unavoidable, verses 31 through 37. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Jesus makes clear that on that great and final day, everyone's life will be impacted one way or the other. He's talking about those, speaking of those who were on the roof or a person in the field working and he's, his indication there that this return will be quick. There's, there's no time to, to go back and, and, and resolve things at home or, or to gather things at home. It will be quick and it will expose it will expose our hearts for what they truly are. It will reveal on that moment, at that moment when Jesus comes again, it will reveal where our truest affections rest. Will we be scrambling for and clinging to our possessions or will we simply embrace his arrival with joy? Jesus gives us a, a warning. It's, it's, 
three words in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. You remember Lot's wife? Lot, his family left Sodom. What, what did Lot's wife do? They were told not to even look back as judgment would rain down on that city. And what did she do? She looked back, became a pillar of salt immediately. Then he says, he who seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Friends, that day will reveal a lot about us. It will reveal whether or not we've forsaken all to follow Jesus or if we're still clinging to the things of this world. He continues on and says that two will be in the bed and one taken, two will be grinding at the mill and one taken while one remains. Now there's debate on whether or not the one who is taken is taken to judgment or taken to salvation. Regardless, what we see, the two have opposite fates and we see here a picture of absolute separation, which reminds us again, the impact of that day will be for everyone. Everyone's life will be impacted one way or the other. It will be unavoidable. You will not be able on that day when Christ returns to just kind of to tuck and run. Your life will be impacted. The disciples hear this and they respond in verse 37. Where, Lord? Now there's some discussion on what are they referring to? Are they referring to the people being taken? Where are they being taken? Or are they responding to the whole account that Jesus has just given regarding where's this going to happen when, when the Son of Man returns? And I think that's probably right. The Pharisees asked when, the disciples asked where. And Jesus responds again with, with this phrase, where the corpse is, the vultures will gather. It's obvious where there's a dead carcass, a dead animal, because the vultures are hovering over ahead and it's clear where that is. Just so, when the Son of Man returns, it will be clear upon his return where he's coming and what he's going to do. Jesus makes clear that his second coming will be unavoidable. It's not gonna be like a breaking news report that you see, and you're like, oh, wow, and then you just brush it off and an hour later you're not even thinking about it again, no matter how tragic it is. No matter how tragic. Now everyone is going to be impacted upon this return. You cannot avoid this day. His return will either result in our deliverance unto eternal life or deliverance into eternal judgment. It's not, it's not a joking matter. It's not one of those things where we'll just kind of sit back and kind of observe it and see how things shake out. No, you will be impacted. Just think about that. If, if Jesus were to come right now, would you be ready? It will be unmistakable. It will be unavoidable and it will be unexpected as we said. I want us to consider four pieces of application briefly as we close our time together in reference to this passage regarding the nature of the kingdom of God and its impact on our lives, 
its present reality, its future fullness. First of all, I think this passage calls us to affirm the presence of the kingdom with our life. Since the kingdom of God has already kind of broken into the world, there are real implications for how we are to live. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king has come. The kingdom of God is in your midst. That implies several things. In order for you to be in the kingdom, you must repent of your sin and put your faith in the king. So if you're not following Jesus, the first action, the first implication on your life is that you would submit your life to this king. He came, he lived a life of righteousness, he died on the cross for sinners just like you. He was raised on the third day, ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven and he's coming again for his people. Are you among the redeemed? And if not, the Bible will urge you, the Bible would command you to repent. Today is the day of salvation, to put your hope and trust in Christ, to find Jesus as your hope. And as his followers, we're called to treasure the king. Friends, don't be so caught up with signs of the second coming that you neglect the king himself. Don't get so caught up with speculation and how it's going to come out, how it's all going to shake out. Certainly study the Bible, try to understand it, but don't get so caught up with those things that, that you're not treasuring the king himself. We're called to live as citizens of the kingdom. We must remember that the Bible refers to us as citizens of heaven. Our citizenship ultimately rests elsewhere. Our permanent residence is in a kingdom that is eternal, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And let us not forget that our ultimate allegiance is to that kingdom. So how we live, how we think, how we talk, where we put our hopes, our affections, everything should be shaped and informed by that reality. Affirm the presence of the kingdom of God with your life. Number two, reject false claims and end times speculation. There's always been fascination with the end times and return of Christ. Some go as far as setting dates and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. We know that those dates, they get set, they come and they go. What, 20 years or so ago even, this is not date setting, but I know when I was latter teens and coming up in the early adulthood, the Left Behind series took the Christian world by storm. I'm convinced that most, a lot of people develop their end times viewpoints from that series and not the Bible. That series is fiction, by the way. Now, it's fine to have a particular millennial viewpoint if you can have Bible behind it. It's fine to have an end times perspective. What is not fine is to be so consumed with dates and with a particular millennial viewpoint that when Jesus does actually return, you've missed the whole point. Trying to relate every news story 
or event related to Israel or the next blood moon as some fulfillment of prophecy is just not where Jesus calls us to live. It's not. They will say to you, Jesus says, look there, look here. And what does Jesus say? Do not go out or follow them. Don't buy that stuff. Reject false claims and end times speculation. Number three, recognize the distraction of worldliness. The warning Jesus gives throughout this text is a warning not just for unbelievers, but for the disciples. He's speaking to the disciples. Verse 22, and he said to the disciples. And that command there in verse 32 should be a command that we hear loud and clear. Remember Lot's wife. Seems like an odd exhortation, doesn't it? You see, her problem is that while you could take her out of Sodom, you could not get the Sodom out of her. So she looked back, revealing her true affections. Brothers and sisters, the lives we live can be a dangerous distraction. We can be so engrossed with living in the present that we lose sight of that which is eternal. The daily grind can lure us into this sense of spiritual complacency. It's easy to do, all of us, all of us get there. And the more that we consume our lives with the things of this world, the more our, our hearts will grow in affection for them. So before long, our hearts are more affectionate for the things of the world than they are for the things of God. Verse 32 and 33 are, are so instructive for us. Remember Lot's wife, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. Whoever gives his life up, whoever gives up the things of this world to follow Jesus, your affections would be upon him foremost. There's a sense of urgency here as he's giving this instruction. There's a sense of detachment being called for. Don't be like Lot's wife. Don't cling to the things of this world. Even when, the, even when you may sense the, the coming of the Son of Man and when it actually happens and you see it happening, don't look back and don't be trying to, 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 to hurry around to try to protect your things or whatever the case may be. Jesus is saying, he's saying to his disciples and he's saying to us by extension that when he comes again, his followers should not be so tie, tied to the world that the second coming of Jesus would seem like a huge inconvenience. If Jesus were to come today, would that be an inconvenience for you? I know earlier in my life, I would think, especially when I was a teenager, I would think that was a huge inconvenience, Jesus. If you were to come, I got stuff to do. So, so misguided. But think about that, friends. I want you to think about your family, your work, the things you love and enjoy to do in this world. And if Jesus were to come again and kind of interrupt all of that, would that seem like an inconvenience to you? Are you, are you so fixated on the things that we experience in this life that his second coming and the establishment of the, the kingdom of God in its fullest and final state would seem just like a big interruption? Recognize the distraction of worldliness. Remember Lot's wife. 
Number four, be ready because Jesus is coming again. Jesus will come again. Just as he came the first time, so he will come again a second. It will be unmistakable, it will be unexpected, it will be unavoidable. And on that great day, a, a separation will happen. Those who have embraced Jesus by faith will be delivered into everlasting life and the fullness of the kingdom of God forever. And those who remain in their sin will be cast into judgment eternally. So friend, if you've not committed your life to Christ by faith, do not wait. Today is the day to trust and follow Christ. And I will tell you this, if you do, you will find that Jesus is not an inconvenience. He is not a burden. He is the source of present and everlasting joy. The kingdom of God is a present reality through the presence of Christ, but it's not yet in its full and final form. So by God's grace, let's take hold of the present blessings that the kingdom gives us. Let us live in faithfulness in anticipation of its coming fullness when Christ comes again. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for instructing us. Thank you for checking our hearts. Thank you, Lord, for exposing just our drifting. Father, for reminding us of what is true about the kingdom, about its presence, about its future fulfillment. Lord, as we consider these things from your word today, would you help us to respond in the appropriate ways of repentance or obedience? Father, maybe we have been lulled to apathy and complacency. Maybe we do view the second coming of Jesus if we're honest if we're honest, Lord, we would see that as a huge inconvenience. And Father, would you call us to repentance over that? Would you check our hearts? Would you help, to see, help us to see where our true affections lie? And that we would be those who long for the day when Christ comes again. In anticipation of that day, Lord, would you help us to remain faithful to you? Lord, we thank you for showing us these things this morning from your word. Call us to faithfulness and obedience today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.